are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number six. Today's episode is titled Sirens, Scylla, Charybdis, and Some Cows. So welcome back to Odyssey, the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to episode six, an episode I have chosen to title Sirens, Scylla, Charybdis, and Some Cows. So as you will recall, Odysseus, his one ship, and his tiny remaining crew had somehow managed to navigate their way back out of the land of Grim Hades and to make it, possibly with the help of some enchantress guided winds, back to Circe's island. Now, folks, Odysseus's journey to the land of the dead, and I suppose more crucially, his return from the said land of dead alive, now placed our boy Odysseus firmly into the upper echelon of human heroes. And like all heroes whose questing itinerary includes a journey to the land of Grim Hades, Odysseus returned to the land of the living with special knowledge helpful in completing his quest. Firstly, and most importantly, he now had intel on the situation back home in Ithaca, and he knew with absolute certainty that he had better get back to Ithaca very soon indeed. And next, while he had been in the land of Grim Hades, while he had been provided with a list of concrete do's and don'ts, if you will, for the remaining journey, those had been provided to him by the dead prophet Tiresias. And foremost among those warnings had been an absolute imperative against a particular island and some particularly enticing cattle who grazed on that island. Tiresias had made it very clear that those cattle under no circumstances were to be barbecued. Those cattle belonged to the sun god Helios and the sun god Helios was very protective of his cows. If you hurt those cows, Odysseus, I see disaster for your ship and your men. And even if you yourself escape, it will be a long time before you reach home in a wretched state on a foreign ship, all alone, only to find your house in disorder and filled with arrogant men who devour your goods and attempt to win the hand of your wife, as if you were already dead. So, secret knowledge acquired from the land of Hades in place, Odysseus and the crew, revisited Circe's island. Now their first task when they got there, as per Odysseus's earlier promise, was to burn and bury the body of poor, luckless Elpenor. So they found the body, they brought it down to the seaside, as Elpenor had requested, and they built a burial mound there. Once they had gone through all of the appropriate funeral rituals, they took poor Elpenor's ore from the ship, and they placed it, as per his final request, on top of his burial mound. And the crew, who, well, days earlier, hadn't even noticed that their poor friend was missing, now afforded Elpenor his 15 minutes of epic fame. Once the burial was done, Circe arrived, 
and she offered to the crew a full day of feasting and good wine, suggesting that they spend the entire day and the following night on her island before departing on their quest in the morning. And no doubt Circe offered our boy Odysseus some bonus zinnia and advanced trust exercises that night inside of her gorgeous bed. I am a stubborn man, Odysseus tells us, but I agreed. And then, folks, sometime that night, once all other possible listening ears in the crew were sound asleep down on the beach, Circe, from her gorgeous bed, provided Odysseus with a ridiculously detailed Michelin guide, if you will, of the next round of monsters and of temptations that Odysseus was going to have to confront and somehow overcome if he was ever to make it home. First of all, you will reach the island of the Sirens, Circe cautioned. The Sirens sit in a meadow, surrounded by massive heaps of dead men's bones, the flesh still rotting and the skin all shriveled up. If any man goes near them and listens to their voices, the Sirens will seduce him with their songs. And then, after that rather bracing image, Circe went on to offer some more practical advice. When you approach the land of the Sirens, Odysseus, use wax. Plug your sailors' ears as you row past. But if you wish to hear them, Odysseus, your men must fasten you to the ship's mast by hand and foot, straight upright, with tight ropes. And so bound, you will enjoy the Sirens' song. But if you beg your men to set you free, Odysseus, they must tie you down with even firmer knots. And then, following the island of the Sirens, Circe went on to explain that the route home diverged into two possible channels, neither of them very appealing. Option A, Circe explained, was a channel through what she referred to as the Clashing Rocks where, apparently, ships are simultaneously smashed against the rock walls of the channel, while, at the same time, being consumed by raging gusts of fire. Now, the precise mechanics of the strait, Circe never quite made clear to Odysseus, but the thesis of her warning was more than sufficient. No human ship has ever passed there, Odysseus. Not even the birds can fly through there in safety. Uh, but then Circe added a qualifier to her no human ship has ever passed to their statement. Apparently, Circe said, one ship had historically navigated the clashing rocks and survived. But that was a ship of a famed hero, a man named Jason. And even then, Circe explained, it had been a very near thing, only accomplished through the deific intervention of Hera, queen of the gods herself. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll forgive me a brief digression, one is in order at this point. The Jason that Circe referred to in passing was the mythic Greek hero Jason. And the story is so much fun that it might someday serve as its own freestanding podcast. So here's just the quick Coles Notes version for now. Folks, Jason's stories actually predate both Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey by centuries. And the most famous Jason story involves a quest in which he and a band of brothers, an entire whack of superheroes, if you will, well, that band of brothers sets off on an epic journey to locate something called the Golden Fleece. 
Now, though the story was obviously very well known to Homer or Homers of Iliad and Odyssey, the written version of the story didn't actually get written down until centuries following Homer. Uh, eventually, there was a, an Egyptian, well, a Greek living in Egypt, a guy named Apollonius, and in the 3rd century BCE, he penned a wonderful story called the Argonautica, which recounts all of the adventures. And in that story, if you read it, you will learn that the mythic hero Jason not only successfully navigated through those clashing rocks, but you will also learn that he and his crew spent some time on Circe's island too. Now, there is no account inside of the Argonautica of Circe attempting to transform Jason's crew into animals, or of Jason being invited to spend any quality time in Circe's gorgeous bed. Probably on both counts, it's because Jason, unlike Odysseus, arrived on Circe's island in the company of his wife, a woman named Medea. And Medea, if you don't know, was a very, very powerful sorceress in her own right. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure in the specifics, but I imagine that there must be some sort of an unspoken sorceress code or some kind of professional regulations which prohibit one sorceress from messing about with another sorceress's man or his ship and crew. But I digress. Let's get back to our story. Circe told Odysseus about route option A through the Clashing Rocks, the route in which no human ship, save Jason's, had survived. And then Circe suggested the other option, option B. Now this route also involved threading a ship through a narrow channel, with dangers on both sides. On the one side, Circe explained, there was a whirlpool. A whirlpool so fearsome that it had its own name and, curiously, its very own gender. The whirlpool, well, her name was Charybdis. And the unique feature of this whirlpool, Circe went on to explain, was that Charybdis followed a very precise schedule. Three times a day she opened up, started to whirl, and then sucked down to the bottom of the seabed anything in her range, including, apparently, entire full ships and crews. Don't be there when she does this, Circe warned. If you are, not even Poseidon can save you. And then, three times a day, precisely on schedule, Charybdis, well, she reversed her flow and belched everything sucked to the bottom of the seabed, now back up to the surface again. So, that was the one side of the channel. And then on the other side of the channel, there was a supposedly safe route. But Circe wasn't quite done yet with her explanation. On that side of the channel, opposite Charybdis, Circe explained, there was a high, sheer cliff. And living in the cave, at the top of that cliff, was a monster, again hideous and again female. Her name... Circe explained, is Scylla, and she is so dangerous that even a god would be afraid of her. She has twelve dangling legs and six long necks. Each neck ends in a ghastly head with three rows of teeth, pregnant, Circe eloquently stated, with death. Now, apparently, Scylla's modus operandi, according to Circe, was to sit in her cave and use those six long necks and heads to snatch fish, dolphins, seals, and sometimes even whales out of the sea. 
But by far and away, Scylla's favorite treat was sailors. And absolutely no ship in recorded mythological history had ever gotten by Scylla's cave without losing one sailor to each of those six heads. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what Circe did not inform Odysseus was how she, Circe, was able to provide Odysseus with such a precise and detailed, anatomically correct and graphic description of the monstrous Scylla. And Circe had her reasons for not telling Odysseus. But here, in this podcast, in the interests of full disclosure, I will share with you folks the somewhat less than flattering to our favorite enchantress backstory on Scylla. The backstory goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a young, innocent, and absolutely ravishing human woman named Scylla. And one day, a minor sea god, a guy named Glaucus, well, he caught sight of Scylla, and he fell instantly in love with her. But Scylla, in spite of poor Glaucus's very best romantic efforts, Scylla showed no interest in Glaucus at all. So the poor man, in desperation, sought the help of an enchantress, a woman named Circe. Please, Circe, can you help me out with a love potion or something? I so badly want to be with Scylla. She is the light of my eternal life, etc., etc., etc. But Circe, instead of helping out poor Glaucus, well, Circe decided that she kind of fancied Glaucus for herself. And as per Circe's usual pattern, she suggested that she and Glaucus repair to her bedroom for some advanced trust exercises. Now, Glaucus protested, But I have eyes only for Scylla. She is the most beautiful woman I have ever met. Well, we will see about that, Circe replied, before transforming poor, innocent, lovely Scylla into a horrifying and horrifyingly ugly monster. So, folks, those twelve legs, those six necks, those three rows of jagged teeth, pregnant with death. All of them, courtesy of our girl Circe. And with that story in mind, perhaps it was fortunate that our boy Odysseus, some adventures earlier, responded so willingly to Circe's invitation of some quality time in her gorgeous bed. But now back to our story. Odysseus wasn't privileged to any of this information because Circe wasn't sharing it. Instead, Odysseus's polytropous mind was already churning, searching for a strategy to navigate his ship safely between the whirlpool Charybdis and the she-monster Scylla. Goddess, please tell me the truth. Is there no other way? Or can I somehow circumvent Charybdis and, and then stop Scylla when she tries to kill me? But Circe answered, No, you fool. Odysseus, your mind is still obsessed with strategies of war. Here, Odysseus, you must simply surrender to the gods. And then Circe went on to outline the only pragmatic course of action open to Odysseus. Circe counseled Odysseus to steer his ship to the Scylla side of the channel 
as far away from Trivdis as possible, and accept the loss of six men, one for each of Scylla's heads, as better than the alternative, which was of course the whirlpool Charybdis sucking in and destroying the entire ship and crew. And Odysseus? Don't even think about arming yourself to fight her, Circe further cautioned, or Scylla might have time to eat six of your men and then come back for seconds. So go fast before she strikes again. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Circe launched into her final traveler's warning, echoing pretty well, word for word, the dead prophet Tiresias's warnings about the consequence of barbecuing the sun god's cattle. If you damage them, Odysseus, I foretell disaster for your ship and for your crew. And even if you survive, Odysseus, you will return home late and humiliate it, having caused the death of all of your men. Well, with those grim words and prophecies echoing in his mind, Odysseus attempted to get some sleep, but morning arrived early. So Odysseus, sleepless, said a final fond goodbye to Circe, and the men pushed their long ship back out onto the sea. Now Homer informs us that, quote, Circe sent a friendly wind to fill the sails, but I would quibble with Homer's selection of adjective, suggesting that friendly seems rather overly optimistic, given the plan of monsters and temptations ahead on the day to come. But then, whatever the case, wind-friendly or dire, the crew and Odysseus were on their way. Out at sea, Odysseus, with anxious heart, called his crew around the front of the ship and filled them all in on the details that Circe had provided the night before. My friends, the revelations Circe shared with me should not be kept a secret, known to me alone. So I will share them with you, and then we can die in the knowledge of the truth, or else escape. And pretty well the moment that Odysseus had completed his inspirational speech, those friendly winds died, and the sea turned to an unnatural, dead calm. And Odysseus, knowing that Monster the First was on its way, well, Odysseus went quickly to work. I gripped a wheel of wax between my hands and I cut it small. Then firm kneading and sunlight warmed the wax, and I used it to plug the ears of my men. And following Odysseus's instructions, the crew, now totally deaf, then bound their captain by his hands and feet, tight up against the ship's mast. And then they were within range of the land of the sirens. And the sirens, seeing the ship approach, well, the sirens started to sing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, another brief digression is required here before we get on to the song of the sirens. As you likely know, if you're at all familiar with this story, the sirens are without doubt one of the absolutely most popular, iconic, and particularly for artists, well-loved characters inside of Homer's Odyssey. And something very interesting, and some might say very inevitable, 
has happened to Homer's sirens over the 2,500 years or so since Homer first told his tale. The sirens folks have grown in number, and they have changed in shape. The Odyssey tells us there were only two sirens, and as to what they looked like, well, Homer offers no physical description at all. But then, folks, in the centuries following Homer, storytellers decided to, well, flesh out the story a little bit. So the number of sirens increased uh, from Homer's two uh, to three to four and eventually twelve. And then in the process, all twelve sirens were given personal names. But as far as I'm concerned, the most interesting transformation in the sirens over time was in their physical description. Following Homer, who offers absolutely no physical description of the sirens at all, the sirens were first described by some later storyteller as bird-like creatures who sang songs, as do the birds. Then, some time later, another storyteller changed those birds' heads into female heads. So now, folks, what we had were bird women singing songs. And once that was established, the artists and the storytellers went completely crazy. Some people substituted bird bodies for fish bodies. Then other people decided that fish bodies down below but naked female bodies from the waist up would make for more fun eye candy in the storytelling. So some versions of our sirens today, folks, of course, look very much like modern mermaids. And then, of course, once, well, we had made that transformation, it was only a matter of time before the artists and the storytellers equally decided to depict the sirens as 100% female, head to toe. And ladies and gentlemen, a very quick scan of Google Images will reveal, pun intended, that absolutely naked sirens are by far and away the most popular version of all. Who'd have thunk it? And so, Homer's two sirens, whatever they looked like, well, those two sirens saw Odysseus's ship, and they started to sing their little hearts, or their beaks, or their fins, or their God knows what, out as the ship approached. And it must have been a great annoyance to them when Odysseus's crew, ears plugged up firmly with wax, simply calmly and quite unconcernedly rode on by. And ladies and gentlemen, no doubt the crew were more than a little appreciative of that hot wax that their captain had jammed into their ears when they caught a glimpse of the shoreline of the Sirens Island. Huge heaps of dead sailors the flesh sitting rancidly rotting on the bones was stacked up on the shores. And as to Odysseus, tied firmly to the mast and ears quite unplugged, well, the song of the sirens positively undid him. There was something in their honeyed song so enticing, so compelling, so satisfying, I suppose, that Odysseus even as he saw the stacks of rotting corpses on the siren's shores, simply could not help himself. Screaming at his men, imploring his men, begging and beseeching his men, untie me, please, let me go! Odysseus became positively unglued. And his men, witnessing a side of their leader that they had never seen, did the sensible opposite thing and bound their poor captain even tighter to the mast. So what was it, ladies and gentlemen, that Odysseus heard? What were the words? What was the message of the siren's song? Well, it was not, as most folks nowadays assume, 
a song that had anything at all to do with sexual seduction. Folks, the modern definition of a siren as a woman who uses her powers of sex to lure, distract, and frequently destroy good men? Well, that definition seems to have arrived in the popular telling of the Odysseus story at about the very same time that the artists decided to transform Homer's two sirens into a full bevy of naked ladies. Now, if you're looking for an example of a real siren using the modern definition from the Odyssey, you can look no further than Circe the Temptress. She was a siren in the very contemporary sense of the word, keeping our boy Odysseus quite happily entertained in her honeyed bed and distracted from his homecoming for a full calendar year. But the two sirens of Homer's Odyssey were not singing songs of sex. They were offering a temptation much, much more enticing and much much less available to our polytropous boy Odysseus than a quick tumble in the sack, or I suppose to be precise, 365 tumbles in said sack. The sirens were offering Odysseus knowledge. Come here, Odysseus. Listen to our voices, Odysseus. We, we know everything. Everything the Greeks and the Trojans suffered at Troy. And Odysseus, we know whatever happens anywhere. Now just imagine, folks, for Odysseus, the temptation of gaining all of that delicious knowledge. Folks, back what must have seemed like an eternity ago, Odysseus had spent most of a year of his life orchestrating the eventual war against Troy, and then the next ten years of his life on the beaches of Troy, deep, deep, deep into the geopolitics, the tactics, and the strategies of that war. So imagine, just imagine the questions that he'd have now about the intricate parts of that elaborate gods and men puzzle that was the Trojan War. The parts that he, a mere human pawn in that war, had never had any hope of really knowing. But now here, the sirens were offering the big picture perspective, all of the inside knowledge, if you will, on an event that had occupied and defined Odysseus's life. Folks, the sirens, ultimately, they were offering Odysseus meaning. And who of us would not be profoundly attracted to being offered a very personalized version of that siren song as it concerned our own lives? And then, of course, there was the sirens' second offering. Odysseus, we know whatever happens anywhere on earth, including, of course, by implication, everything that happens and might happen in the future in the land of Ithaca. So, it is no wonder that Odysseus, hearing the song of the sirens, begged, implored, raged, and cried at his men to untie those rope knots and let him swim to the island of the sirens, the island of perfect, complete knowledge. 
And I think it's kind of fascinating, folks, that way back at the beginning of this epic, on the island of the Lotus Eaters, Odysseus had not even been remotely tempted by the Lotus Eaters' promise of forgetting it all. But for a man with Odysseus's mind, the inverse temptation, the promise of knowing it all, well, that was a sort of offer that he simply could not refuse. But then the ship was by. The men had been rowing hard. They weren't wasting any time and not hearing the sirens. They weren't at all attracted to the huge heaps of rotting bones and corpses on the shore. So before Odysseus could rip his flesh any further as he struggled against the ropes tied to that mast, they were by the island of the sirens. And soon Odysseus recovered himself. He nodded to his crew, and they, no doubt, very carefully and cautiously untied their captain, keeping a very close hold on him, lest he leap overboard and swim back to the siren's honeyed island. But when he did not, well, the crew exhaled and removed the wax from their own ears, too. And the moment they removed the wax, folks, well, they likely wished that they had not. For the very first sound to greet them was a horrifying roar. The ship started to move quickly, and as the men looked up, they realized that they were fast approaching the whirlpool Charybdis, and that the roar they were hearing was the whirlpool sucking what sounded like the entire sea down into its vortex. Well, in a panic, the crew dropped their oars. They certainly had no intention of voluntarily rowing towards that sound, and their commander, Odysseus, knowing they had no choice but to go by the whirlpool Charybdis, decided that now might be the time to deliver an inspirational speech. My dear friends, we are experienced in danger. This is no worse than when the Cyclops captured us in his cave, and we got away that time thanks to my skill, my brains, and my strategy. And, ladies and gentlemen, it's hard not to imagine that at least some of the men on that ship were muttering under their breath a somewhat more jaded account of their captain's revisionist history on the Cyclops Cave incident. Something that might have sounded more like this. And the only reason we found ourselves captured in that cave, dear captain, was because you overrode our objections and marched us into it. And as to your claim that we got away that time, well, six empty seats on this boat put a bit of a lie to that claim, Captain. So how many of us are you planning to lead to death now, before later declaring that your skill, your brains, and your strategy saved us all? But no doubt I am being uncharitable, ladies and gentlemen. And quite possibly the heroes of Bronze Age epics should not be held to the same standards of accountability that any court-martial of inquiry would demand of a contemporary military commander. But since we are speaking of the responsibilities of command and of the sometimes gut-wrenching ethical decisions that commanders all must face, well, in fairness, our boy Odysseus now faced a quite genuine ethical dilemma. Remember that back on Circe's island, he had promised his crew full disclosure. My friends, the revelations Circe shared with me should not be kept a secret, known to me alone. 
so I will share them with you, and we can die in knowledge of the truth, or else escape. But now, folks, Odysseus faced a problem with that promise. Circe had told him about Scylla and Charybdis, and had rightly pointed out that the correct course of action, gut-wrenching though it would be, was to guide the ship close to Scylla and lose six men, rather than guiding the ship too close to Charybdis and losing the entire crew. But Odysseus, enough of a student of human nature to know, well, Odysseus knew how his men would respond, how any men would respond, if they entered that narrow channel in the advanced knowledge that six of them were going to die. And here is what, well, no doubt would have happened. The men on the Scylla side of the ship, knowing that they were the most likely candidates to be captured and eaten by those long-necked heads, well, those men would not be able to help themselves. And as the ship neared Scylla's cliff, those men would instinctively row hard, much harder than the men on the Charybdis side of the boat. And the consequences of a few brief seconds of imbalanced rowing would be dire, because the imbalanced rowing would inevitably direct the bow of the ship directly into the whirlpool's vortex, and then the entire crew would die. And the only other possibility that Odysseus considered was that the men on the Scylla side of the deck would simply abandon their oars and dive beneath deck. And of course, that would doom the ship to Charybdis too. So, what do you do if you're Odysseus? Do you keep your command promise of full disclosure to your crew? Or do you break your promise, willingly sacrifice six crewmen's lives? but save the rest of the team. Odysseus tells us what he did. I said nothing of Scylla, since she meant inevitable death. And if they knew, my men would drop their oars and huddle down in the hold in fear. But then needing to try something, before they approached the narrow channel, Odysseus donned his armor, grabbed a long spear for each hand, and then stood quite courageously, on the foredeck of his ship, hoping against hope that he might kill Scylla before she had a chance to seize his men. And then the tiny ship was in the narrow channel. We sailed on into the strait, and we moaned in terror. On one side, Scylla. On the other side, shining Charybdis, with a dreadful gurgling noise, sucking down the water. My comrades turned pale with terror as we gazed at Charybdis and thought we were going to die. But while our frightened gaze was on the whirlpool, Scylla snatched six from the ship. Beautiful, strong young men. I looked up in time and saw their arms and their legs thrashing above me. And they shouted to me and they called out my name for a final time. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus continued his tale, using a grim simile that strangely echoed what had happened on the island of the Lastragonians. And as a fisherman stands on a jutting rock and casts the bait with his rod, and the bronze hook sinks in the water, sheathed in an ox-horn tube, 
and he catches a fish, and he reels it in quickly and flings it, writhing onto the shore. Just like that were my comrades writhing, pulled up towards the cliffs, and at the cave entrance, she ate them. They screamed and kept stretching their hands out towards me in their hideous final agony. That was the most sickening thing that I have ever seen. And then the tiny ship was through the narrow channel of death and back into open waters. And by now, ladies and gentlemen, well, it had been a pretty long day. Night was falling. The crew was physically and emotionally ruined. And what everybody needed more than anything else was a safe island to sleep, a hot meal, and a stiff drink. Fortunately, as they exited the Death Channel, there was an island right within sight. By Odysseus's account, an absolutely lovely-looking island. But as the crew found their final remaining bits of energy to row hard, landfall food and sleep within easy sight, Odysseus heard a sound that, well, if anything, was even more frightening and more disturbing than the sound of the whirlpool they had just escaped. While still out on the sea in our black ship, I heard the lowing of cattle, and I thought of the words of the prophet Tiresias and of the goddess Circe, who warned me strictly that we must avoid this island. So, with heavy heart, I spoke to the crew. Boys, I know how much you have suffered. But Tiresias and Circe both insisted that, boys, we have to avoid this island. So let's steer our ship around it. But by now, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus's shattered crew had had more than enough. Physically exhausted, emotionally wrecked, and thinking just for a moment that they had finally reached safe harbor. They simply could not will themselves to carry on, to pass on by, to find another safer island. It was Eurylochus, Odysseus's number two in command, who spoke out on behalf of the crew. You are a hard man, Odysseus. Your strength never fails. Your limbs never falter. And as to your heart, well, it must be made out of iron. But we, mere men, we have had no rest or sleep. We're exhausted. We're falling asleep at the oars. And you, you tell us to keep going? With night coming on so fast? And to head away from the island and wander off for who knows how long? Over the foggy sea? So I say that we should give way to night and stop here and have our meal. And then, as soon as daybreak arrives, right away we will board our ship and we will put out to sea. Well, folks, the entire crew joined in and there was a chorus of exhausted, hungry, angry, defeated men demanding that their captain relent and allow the tiny ship to make landfall. And Odysseus, 
their commander, physically, emotionally, totally out of gas himself. Well, Odysseus, he finally capitulated. Eurylochus, I am one against many, so I have to give in. But in an attempt to salvage what he clearly knew was a foolish call, Odysseus continued. But all of you, first swear to me a mighty oath. We have plenty of food and drink on our ship. So, if we find any herd of cows on this island, do not be fool enough to kill even a single animal. And the crew, of course, eager to get ashore, to build a fire, to cook a dinner, to finally, finally, finally get some sleep, well, the crew swore to whatever Odysseus demanded. And an hour later, they were all asleep, on the island of the sun god Helios, and of his prized, immortal and glorious cattle. Now, of course, ladies and gentlemen, this story is not going to end well. In fact, the wheels of fate and inexorable destiny started turning the very second Odysseus granted his crew permission to set foot on that cursed island. Here's what happened. The men slept peacefully, but near dawn of the next day, Zeus sent a quite unnatural storm. And when the crew were woken by the storm, it was clear that there was no possibility at all of leaving that island. The sea remained covered even in the morning in fog and dark, and the waves crashing onto the island made a departure, even if they had have dared venture into that fog and dark, well, it made a departure a physical impossibility. So the men, well, they dragged their boat into the relative shelter of a sea cave, and then the crew hunkered down, patiently, optimistically waiting, for the storm to blow over. Odysseus did his very best to offer up a good cheer. Don't worry, boys. We have plenty of food and drink on board. So a reminder, do not touch those cattle, or we will regret it. And the men, with lots of food and drink on board, agreed to Odysseus's terms. Now, the rations on board the ship were not nearly as enticing as would have been a nice bit of barbecue. But the storm, the men were confident, would abate soon enough, and doubtless there were other islands in the vicinity that would offer some carnivore-worthy but non-sacred sources of good, red, barbecuable meat. But, ladies and gentlemen, the storm did not abate. In fact, for a full month, those unnatural storm winds continued to blow, trapping the men on the island as effectively as would of any giant boulder blocking the only way out of a cave. It was unnatural. And soon, the rations, all that good food and drink still on board, well, the rations had run out too. So the men tried their hands at snaring birds and then at hooking fish, but to absolutely no avail. And soon enough, starvation set in. And all the while, the sun god Helios's herd of fat, well-marbled cattle grazed placidly, grazed enticingly in the nearby meadow, a mere stone's throw or arrow shot of Odysseus 
and his slowly starving crew. Odysseus recounts what happened next. One morning, I strode off to pray, in case some god would show me how to get back home. I left my men behind and I crossed the island, and I prayed to all of the gods. And the gods, they poured a gentle sleep upon my eyes. And while I was on the other side of the island, sound asleep, Eurylochus, Eurylochus proposed a foolish plan. Listen, my friends, all human death is hard to bear, but starving is the most miserable death of all. So, let us round up the finest of these cattle and sacrifice them to the gods. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just a reminder that a usual sacrifice to the gods inside of the Bronze Age world of this story first involved the ritual killing of the animal, then a wrapping of the animal's thigh bones in fat, and then a burning of that largely unusable portion of the carcass for the pleasure of the Olympian gods. The gods, if you have forgotten, did not eat meat, but they absolutely went nuts over the smell of good barbecue. But the critical thing about a sacrifice to the gods, folks, that we have to remember is that the vast majority of the meat was not wasted, if you will, on sacrifice, but rather consumed by very hungry human beings afterwards. So, Eurylochus's primary motivation in killing the sacred cattle was to assuage his own desperate hunger. And his hope of sanctifying the butchery by calling it a sacrifice to the gods? Well, that was just a long-shot hope of assuaging the wrath of the god Helios. And even Eurylochus knew that he was proposing a very calculated risk. Here's what he says. And if the sun god is so angry about these cows that he decides to wreck our ship, I would prefer to drink the sea and die at once than to perish slowly, shriveled up here on this desert island. And the balance of the crew, overwhelmed by pangs of hunger, agreed that it was a sensible plan. And soon they had rounded up the best of the sun god's cattle. It was easy. Now, the men had to improvise the standard sacrificial ritual because, well, there was no wine for the libations, so they replaced it with water. And there was no barley meal to sprinkle on the sacrificial ground, so they improvised with leaves from an oak tree. But once the men had prayed, they slit the throats of the cattle, skinned them, carved out the thigh bones, wrapped the bones in fat for the gods, and then eagerly cut the rest of the meat into barbecue-sized chunks and proceeded to roast it over the open flames. And that, of course, is when our boy Odysseus, still sound asleep on the other side of the island, woke up. His senses stimulated into wakefulness, no doubt, by that unmistakable sweet smell of roasting red meat. And right away, Odysseus knew what had happened. Father Zeus! And you other eternal gods, it was cruel of you to lull me into a sleep while my comrades devised this monstrous crime in my absence. And now, 
for the second time on his journey home, our questing hero has managed, a less charitable teller might say, stage-managed, to be sound asleep when the men in his charge were doing very stupid things. And folks, I cannot help but conclude that to fall asleep once may be regarded as a misfortune. To fall asleep twice looks very much like carelessness. But whatever the case, and whoever the culpability, the damage was done. By the time Odysseus had sprinted back to the barbecue side of the island, the men of his crew were already elbow-deep in hot, sweet, greasy fat, greedily chowing down on massive, barely-cooked chunks of tender, sweet flesh from those oh-so-delicious immortal cattle. And folks, here I fear that I have to remind you, the cattle of the sun god Helios were immortal cattle. So though Odysseus's men had slit those cows' throats, skinned the hides, burned the thigh bones, and roasted the flesh, cut up into bite-sized chunks over hot burning flames, in spite of all of that, those immortal cattle refused to die. And soon, the most sickening scene transpired on the island. The flayed hides of the dead cows, thrown off to one side of the barbecue pit, while well, those hides began to crawl back across to the other side of the barbecue pit, where the larger animal bones, wrapped in fat and sacrificed to the gods, had been carefully stacked. And the flayed hides, it appeared, were still very much alive and crawling painfully, slowly, towards their former sinew and bones in a desperate attempt at putting themselves back together again as cows. Meanwhile, as that horror transpired, the chunks of raw meat skewered on the spit and roasting over the fire's flames? Well, the meat started to quiver and moo in protests of pain as the fire's hot flames tortured the poor cattle's still live flesh. And worst of all, the roasted meat now in the hungry sailor's hands, the meat bellowed in pain and agony each time that a hungry member of Odysseus's crew chomped his teeth into that still-living flesh. It was a scene from a nightmare. Butchered, burned, and half-eaten cattle, howling in horrifying pain, their flayed skins crawling across the ground. And all the time, Odysseus's half-starved men, in spite of the horror, hungrily, eagerly, chowing down on that still very much alive animal flesh. And ladies and gentlemen, the macabre banquet 
It went on and on and on. For six days, the men of Odysseus's crew continued to sacrifice, butcher, roast, and eat more and more and more of the sun god Helios's immortal cows. Odysseus, refusing to eat the flesh himself, rebuked his men over and over, but proved absolutely powerless to stop them. And then, on the morning of the seventh day, the skies finally cleared. The storm wind ceased, and an ominously placid Mediterranean sea now invited easy exit from the cursed island. And so Odysseus and his sated, greasy crew boarded the small ship, the crew's stomach still occasionally groaning with the anguished bellows of half-digested live cows. And they sailed away. And folks, I need not remind you that in this quest story, only monsters, Cyclopes, Lastragonians, Scylla, and now Odysseus's men, only monsters consume the flesh of living beings. And monsters, of course, must inevitably die. A dark blue storm cloud appeared, seeming to hang directly over top of Odysseus's small ship. The sky grew dark, then ominously silent. And then it broke. A storm of monumental, even epic scale. Odysseus recounts what happened next. A mighty gust of wind broke off both forestays. The tacking was scattered in the hold. The mast was broken backwards and came crashing down on the top of the helmsman, shattering his skull. At that very moment, Zeus hurled a bolt of lightning onto my ship, and she shuddered and spun around and was filled with the reek of sulfur. All of the men fell overboard. They bobbed in the waves beside the ship like seagulls. And the god blotted out their homecoming. The entire crew died, drowned by the god Zeus in his brother Poseidon's wine-dark sea. As to Odysseus, well, he hung on to the rapidly remaining bits of his ship for dear life. And eventually, in desperation, he managed to lash a couple of broken sections of mast and keel together with a bit of oxhide rope. And to this, he grimly hung on, an improvised raft, if you will, as the storm raged on and on and on. And in the morning, battered by the storm, half-starved to death, and dully aware that he had just lost the balance of his crew. Odysseus realized that his improvised little raft was picking up speed, and to his horror, he saw that he had been caught in the current of the whirlpool Charybdis and was about to be sucked to his death on the ocean's floor. In the last moment, Odysseus looked up and, spying on the shore of the Charybdis side a solitary fig tree overhanging the vortex, Odysseus, with his final remaining strength, made a leap for it, wrapped his arms and legs around the overhanging branch of that tree, and then hung there, clinging upside down over the vortex like a bat in a cave. Meanwhile, his raft 
while Charybdis sucked that down to the bottom of the Mediterranean's floor. And folks, we don't know how long passed, with Odysseus grimly hanging on there, barely conscious. But we do know what happened next. What Odysseus had been waiting for happened next. Charybdis, she reversed her deadly vortex, and she belched up from the ocean's deep Odysseus's frail remains of a raft. Odysseus tells us what he did. I let go my hands and my feet. I dropped myself down to splash into the sea below, beside the timbers of my raft. I climbed onto them and, using my hands, I managed to row away. And then I drifted for nine days. On the evening of the tenth, the waves washed me up onto the shores of a very strange land. And that, of course, ladies and gentlemen, is where we are going to leave our questing hero Odysseus for now. Half drowned, half dead, and all alone, washed up on the sand beach of yet one more mysterious island. Odysseus started out from Troy with twelve ships, laden high with Trojan treasure, and with six hundred good Ithacan men, fathers, sons, husbands, brothers. Odysseus had one simple task, keep the tiny fleet intact and ferry his countrymen safely home on what should have been a ten days at most journey. But now, well, here we are. Over two long years have passed, all twelve ships are long gone, and the crew, ambushed at Ismarus, eaten by Cyclops, spearfished by Lastragonians, ripped to bits by Scylla, or drowned by a vengeful god, the entire crew have lost their homecoming. Only Odysseus remains. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we will move into the post-story commentary. This court will come to order. Prosecution, proceed with your case. Good morning, Your Honor, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. As you already know from the preliminary proceedings in advance of this trial, the man standing in the prisoner's box now, a Mr. Odysseus, is facing the charge of criminal negligence in a leadership capacity. Specifically, Mr. Odysseus is charged with being personally responsible for the loss of 12 ships and of the 600 Ithacan men under his command on his journey home from Troy following the end of the Trojan War. And it has fallen to me, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to vigorously prosecute Mr. Odysseus on that charge, which is what I intend to do this morning. Now, just before we proceed, 
Of course, this trial presents some rather unique challenges for any prosecution team, including my own. First off, of course, there are no eyewitnesses to what happened on that ill-fated journey home from Troy, save for the defendant himself. And of course, that is because all 600 men under the defendant's command are, as you know, already dead. And as to being able to bring in third-party corroborating witnesses to support my prosecution, well, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the unfortunate reality is that those third-party witnesses include a cyclops, a quite a few hundred giant killer cannibals, one six-headed monster, a sentient whirlpool, some sirens, a temptress, and a whole host of gods and assorted demigods none of who, I regret I have to inform the jury, responded to the multiple subpoenas issued by this court, and none of who the court has the resources to compel to come here and testify today. Now, that puts me, the prosecution, with only one piece of available testimony with which I can make my case against the defendant, Mr. Odysseus. All I have available by way of evidence is the defendant's very own words. As the court knows, prior to this trial, the defendant, Mr. Odysseus, provided to the court a nearly four-hour-long first-person sworn testimony as to what he claims really happened during his fleet's ill-fated homecoming journey. And you and the members of the jury and the entire court have already been provided with copies of that testimony. It is found in a document sitting in front of you right now titled The Odyssey. And the salient sections that I will be using in pursuit of my prosecution today are specifically the defendant's first-person accounts of events found in books 9 through 12. Sometimes, ladies and gentlemen of the jury in the legal community, these four books are referred to in the legal shorthand as The Great Wanderings. And that is a phrase which I will utilize many times as a shorthand in my prosecution this morning. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the only words and the only evidence that you will be hearing today are the words and the evidence of the man standing in the prisoner's box right now. Mr. Odysseus himself. But I assure you that Mr. Odysseus's words will prove more than sufficient. And when I have completed my examination of the defendant, Mr. Odysseus, there will not be any doubt in any of your minds at all that this man is guilty of criminal negligence in a leadership capacity. So, that concludes my opening remarks. If the defendant, Mr. Odysseus, would care to step up to the witness box, I will begin with my prosecution. So, Mr. Odysseus, you set sail from Troy with 12 ships. They were all heavily loaded with Trojan treasure. And on those 12 ships were 600 of your Ithacan countrymen. Men who had survived 10 years of bitter war on the bloody battlefields of Troy. Now, your task was to safely ferry those 600 men across the Aegean Sea. 
and to give those men their homecomings after 10 long years away from their homes. So, according to your account, Mr. Odysseus, on the very first day of your homeward journey, you sailed by the seaside city of Ismarus, and you gave orders for your fleet to set aside the mission of homecoming in order to launch a sneak attack on that city. So, Mr. Odysseus, will you, in your own words, describe that raid to the jury? I, I, I plundered the city, and I killed all of the men. And then we took the women with us as slaves, along with a vast haul of treasure. Thank you, Mr. Odysseus. And, of course, we in the courtroom all know the grisly details of what happened next. Your men, Mr. Odysseus, decided to hold a post-sacking of city keg party down on the beach of the burning city. And during that party, your entire 600 men got blind drunk. And then, as we know, the survivors of Ismarus and men from the nearby towns and cities launched an overwhelming dawn raid onto your drunken, defenseless, and hungover crew. Mr. Odysseus, could you describe the details of that raid, please? At dawn, they attacked. As uncountable as the leaves and flowers in the spring, and, well, disaster overtook us. Uh, we fought a ferocious battle beside our ships, and so long as the sun climbed high in the sky, uh, we held our ground. But, uh, when the sun turned around and began to dip in the west, the enemy broke through our lines and they put us to flight. Thank you, Mr. Odysseus. That must have been, I imagine, a particularly terrifying and horrifying day. All 600 of you and your men drunk and hungover and then suddenly launched against by hundreds of chariots, if I understand the record correctly. And that record, Mr. Odysseus, your own record tells us, and I will remind the jury, that during that surprise attack on your drunken little keg party, 72 of your men, fathers, husbands, brothers, died on the beaches of Ismarus, a mere five days from their homecomings. So, Mr. Odysseus, I want to return to what was clearly a seriously ill-advised keg party down on that beach. Now, the record shows that the keg party was not your idea, and in fact that you, on very sound military principles, were opposed to that party. So could you tell the jury, Mr. Odysseus, what you told the men under your command when they proposed the party? I, I told my men that we had to sail at once, but they did not listen to me. A great fools that they were. Thank you, Mr. Odysseus. And if you will allow me to now briefly summarize your Ismarus testimony for the benefit of the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, first of all, a mere five days sail from home, with his ships already piled high with Trojan treasure, the defendant, Mr. Odysseus, 
thought it was necessary to the homecoming mission to attempt to pad his own personal heroic resume by an entirely unnecessary and ill-advised sack of just one more city. And next, the defendant in the witness box, Mr. Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, and, I need not remind you, the commander-in-chief of the entire fleet, on the very first day of his homecoming mission, Mr. Odysseus has already demonstrated to the court that though he might be a brilliant tactician and a clever wordsmith, Mr. Odysseus is certainly not a leader of men. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, even on the very first day of his command of the fleet, his own men refused to obey his lawful order and get back on their ships and avoid that party. Either that, or ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the defendant, Mr. Odysseus, lied in his great wanderings testimony, and he never gave an order to reboard those ships after sacking the city, and he was as complicit as were his 600 men in that keg party down on the beach. And, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I will leave it to you to decide. Is either Mr. Odysseus a failed leader of men, whose men won't even follow a simple order from their commander-in-chief? Or, alternately, did Odysseus never even issue that order to reboard the ships? But let's move on. So, Mr. Odysseus, I would now like to take you to an unfortunate event that happened a few days after the incident at Ismarus, an event in the record referred to in the court notes as the incident in the Cyclops' cave. And as you know, Mr. Odysseus, six more good men under your command lost their homecomings in that Cyclops' cave. But let's step back a little bit before we enter the cave, just to set the scene. Mr. Odysseus, if I understand your Great Wanderings account correctly, sir, you and the men of your fleet, on the night before the incident in the Cyclops' cave, you and your men spent that night on a particularly lush, verdant, food-rich, and entirely safe and deserted island. But, the next morning, Mr. Odysseus, as the crew were preparing to leave the island, as they had their sights set on homecoming, you decided on a change of plans. So the record shows that you ordered 11 of the ships in your fleet and all the crew on those ships to spend another day on the idyllic island, while you meanwhile took one ship and 12 of your hand-picked brave men across the streets from the island in order to explore the mainland. So, Mr. Odysseus, forgive me, but I confess to being a little confused as to your actions in sailing over to the mainland. It appears as though the island on which you were camped for the night was providing food, water, shelter, everything you needed, and... There doesn't seem to be anything essential to the homecoming mission waiting over on that mainland. So, Mr. Odysseus, could you explain to the jury now 
why you chose to interrupt your homecoming mission in order to travel to an island containing cyclopes. What did you tell your men to explain this particular radically off-mission adventurism? Uh, I will go and find out what kind of people live in this place. Are they savage and violent? Or are they good, law-abiding people who fear the gods and show proper kindness to strangers? So, I'll go through that again slowly. Your purpose, Mr. Odysseus, in heading to the Cyclops' island was nothing more but to find out what kind of people live in this place. And, Mr. Odysseus, you were already conceding that the people living there might be savage and violent. So no reason at all for sailing from the idyllic island to the mainland, save for assuaging your personal curiosity. So let's move on. Sometime later, Mr. Odysseus, apparently you and your men had crossed the strait successfully, and the twelve of you, well, your twelve brave men plus you, found yourself standing in front of the Cyclops' cave. Now, your twelve brave companions, all hand-picked by you for their courage and military expertise, well, your twelve brave companions took one look at that cave, and they knew immediately that that cave was a potential death trap. But Mr. Odysseus, you ordered your twelve brave men into the cave anyway. And once inside of the cave, and finding the owner of the cave currently not home, your great wanderings account suggests that your twelve brave men desperately pleaded with you to get out of that cave and to get back to the safety of their ship as quickly as possible. Mr. Odysseus, is that account of your men's pleading to get out of that cave accurate? What did your men tell you, sir? Uh, my companions? They urged me, but I did not take their advice, though it would have been better for us all if I had of. Thank you, Mr. Odysseus. Now, one final question. Clearly your men realized the cave was a death trap. But Mr. Odysseus, you are the commander-in-chief. You are supposed to be the man with the final decision-making authority. It is your military wisdom who everybody else in the fleet looks to for guidance. Did you yourself have even the slightest doubts or premonitions that there was danger inside of that cave? Please, Mr. Odysseus, I insist that you read from the record. I had, from the start, a premonition that we would run into a creature of gigantic strength and savagery who had no knowledge of law or of justice. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the evidence is painfully clear. There was no reason at all for Mr. Odysseus to have ever ventured on to the land of the Cyclopes in the first place. It had nothing at all to do with the mission of securing his men's homecoming. And further to that, the twelve brave men and the defendant himself knew that that cave 
presented a clear and a present danger. Mr. Odysseus, you witnessed the death of six of the men inside of that cave. But the jury wasn't there to see what really happened. So, Mr. Odysseus, I'm going to invite you now to read to the jury your personal eyewitness account of how the first two men who you ordered into that cave actually died. It's right there in the Great Wanderings record, sir. Go ahead. Read it, please. The Cyclops reached his hands towards my men, seized two of them and knocked them hard against the ground like puppies. And the floor was wet with their brains. Then he ripped them limb by limb to make his meal. Then he ate them, devouring their flesh, their guts, and their bones leaving nothing of my men at all. I'm sorry, Mr. Odysseus. I'm sure the jury is sorry, too, for, for those six good men who died in that cave under your command. But, Mr. Odysseus, I submit to you and to the jury that the blood of those good men soaked onto the floor of that unfortunate cave. Well, that blood, Mr. Odysseus, belongs on your hands. But enough of the grim Cyclops' cave. Let us move on. So, Mr. Odysseus, your Great Wandering's testimony accounts that following the incident in the Cyclops' cave, your remaining men, minus the 78 you have now lost, actually came within a mere matter of a few hours of actually achieving their longed-for homecomings. The record is very clear, Mr. Odysseus. You had some good fortune. You met King Aeolus, he gifted you with a magical bag of wind, and he promised you that that bag of wind would blow you and the twelve ships of your fleet safely back into the Ithacan harbor in a mere ten short days. But something went wrong, didn't it, on the tenth day of that homeward-bound journey? At a point where your ships, Mr. Odysseus, were so close to Ithaca, that your men could smell the cook fires of their own hometowns. So, Mr. Odysseus, the record shows that at that moment, at the moment of your men's homecoming, you fell asleep on the deck of your ship. That's kind of strange, Mr. Odysseus. Can, can you explain to the jury how and why this happened so close to Ithaca? Uh, well, I had been doing all of the steering, and exhausted, I let sweet sleep overcome me. I see. And as you slept, Mr. Odysseus, the record shows that your men opened that bag of wind. And it is clear from the record that your men had not the slightest idea that the bag they were opening contained wind. In fact, it appears that you 
deliberately had deceived your crew, and you had led your crew into believing that that bag contained treasure. Treasure which you, once you arrived back home in Ithaca, were not going to share with the men in your command. So, Mr. Odysseus, you slept, the man opened the bag, and what happened next? Well, my men opened the bag, and all of the winds rushed out at once, and the storm had hurled us back to sea, far from our dear home. And specifically, far from the dear home, Mr. Odysseus, the storm blew you directly back to King Aeolius's magical island, where the record shows you approached the palace of the king and requested a replacement bag of wind, if you will, from the good King Aeolius. And now, just speaking personally, Mr. Odysseus, that must have been a rather awkward, difficult, or indeed actually embarrassing conversation for you to have to have had with good King Aeolius. I, I mean, the jury, I'm sure, understands. You, you've been gifted with a meal ticket home, a gold-plated meal ticket home, and you had foolishly squandered that opportunity. So, so Mr. Odysseus, when you knocked on King Aeolius's door and showed up and appeared in front of him, the record shows that he was more than a little bit surprised to see you again. And then he asked what had happened. Who is responsible for this disaster of the bag of wind failing to do what the bag of wind should have done? And Mr. Odysseus, could you tell the court how you responded to King Aeolius's query? What did you specifically say to the king? It's right there in the record, Mr. Odysseus. Please read it loud enough that the jury can hear. I was betrayed by my comrades. Could you say that again, Mr. Odysseus? I don't think you were quite loud enough. Some of the members of the jury might not have heard you. I was betrayed by, by my comrades. I see. So, you failed to tell any of the men under your command the truth of what was in that bag, and you further misled the men under your command into believing that the bag contained treasure, which you had no intention of sharing with them. And then foolishly, you attempted to stay awake for ten days and ten nights in a row, guiding the fleet home, instead of delegating any of the responsibility to the seasoned mariners and the veteran soldiers under your command. And then, Mr. Odysseus, you turned to King Aeolus and had the temerity to blame the men under your command for your manifest failings as a leader? Mr. Odysseus, I'm curious, how did King Aeolus respond to your blaming the men? What did the good king say? It's right there in the record, Mr. Odysseus. Please read it to the jury. Leave this place, you most contemptible of all men. I am not helping anyone so clearly hated 
by the gods. Thank you, Mr. Odysseus. That must have been a rather difficult and damning thing to hear from the good king. But now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to move on to the next disaster orchestrated by the defendant standing in the prisoner's box in front of you now. The disaster inside of the Lastragonian Harbor. Now, before I proceed, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I realize that you might require at this point in the prosecution a brief little update on how many men the defendant actually has left alive, since he has been rather squandering through the men in his crew at a rather rapid rate over the last few islands he's visited. So just for your benefit, keeping track of the death toll, let me do a little reset at the halfway stage in Mr. Odysseus's disastrous journey home. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you'll recall that Mr. Odysseus departed from Troy with 12 ships and 600 good men. So, 50 men on each of those 12 ships. And then, of course, the losses, which we have already witnessed, began to pile up. 72 dead at Ismarus, and another six dead in the Cyclops' cave. So now, as the fleet sits at anchor on the Mediterranean side of the narrow passage leading into the Lastragonian harbor, the defendant, the commander-in-chief of the fleet, is now in command of 522 men. And doing the math, that works out to an average of 44 crew on each of the 12 ships in the fleet. And in the Lastragonian Harbor incident to follow, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the defendant, Mr. Odysseus, is going to be directly culpable for the loss of 11 of those 12 ships and for the death of 484 of his remaining 522 men. It's a grisly story, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, but one which I, as a prosecution, am obliged to tell. So turning to you, Mr. Odysseus, your great wanderings testimony states that the fleet approached the island of the Lastragonians, and that then you, as the commander-in-chief of the fleet, Mr. Odysseus, made a military assessment as to the safety of the Lastragonian Harbor. Mr. Odysseus, would you please read to the jury your assessment as to the safety of that harbor? The island provided an excellent harbor, shut in on all sides by a ring of sheer cliffs, with two facing headlands that jutted out at the mouth, so that the entrance to the harbor was long and narrow. Thank you, Mr. Odysseus. And so, based on that, your own best military assessment, you proceeded to sail into the harbor. And, of course, we all know the grim details of what happened next. But, Mr. Odysseus, the jury wasn't there. So, in your own words, could you... Read back to the jury what happened next. 
The Lostragonians came crowding from all directions. There were thousands of them. They were not like human beings, but like giants, and they stood on the tops of the cliffs and threw huge rocks, too heavy for humans to lift, and a horrible sound arose of men dying and of ships being smashed to pieces. And the Lastragonians, spearing my men like fish, carried my men home for their hideous dinners. I, I am, I am sorry, Mr. Odysseus, uh, a particularly grim way for your men to have had to die. But, Mr. Odysseus, forgive me, I am curious as I talk to you standing here today. With all of those other 11 ships in your crew being capsized, and with all 484 of the good men in those ships speared and stacked on the shore like so many salmon, Mr. Odysseus, I imagine the members of the jury are a little curious. How did your own personal ship manage to avoid that rain of huge boulders, dodge all of those Lastragonian spear fishermen, and then somehow row your own ship safely out of the Lastragonian harbor of death without incurring any injuries at all. I am sure, Mr. Odysseus, that the jury would like to know. How did your ship alone, Mr. Odysseus, manage to survive? Well, I alone, I moored my ship outside of the harbor. I'm sorry, Mr. Odysseus. I, I, I don't think I, I quite understand. Could, could you just repeat that again? I, I'm watching the jury. Some of them look, well, frankly, baffled. Go on, say it again a bit louder. I moored my ship outside of the harbor. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen of the jury the answer to your question, and I would argue a confession, a confession of guilt from the commander-in-chief of the fleet. He declared the harbor to be excellent, and he allowed 11 of the ships under his command to row into that harbor. But he knew from the very beginning that that harbor was a death trap. And so, at the very last moment, he kept his own personal ship safely out on the Mediterranean side. Now, Mr. Odysseus, one final question, please. Could you tell the jury what you did when you saw those 484 Ithacan men under your command starting to die their horrifying deaths? Did you row back into the harbor? Did you make any sort of a military effort to even salvage one of their lives and pull them to safety? What did you do, Mr. Odysseus, when the men in your command, who had trusted your assessment as to the excellence of the harbor, what did you do when those men started to die?
I drew my sword, and I cut the ropes that moored my ship. And yelling to my men, I told them, Row as fast as possible, away from the danger. And I sailed away, happy to have survived. Thank you. I think your testimony speaks volumes for itself. There is no need for me to connect any of the dots for the members of the jury. So we will move on to Circe's Island. And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, just to keep you up to date on the defendant's mounting death toll in his squandering of the men under his command. Mr. Odysseus's fleet is now down to one solitary ship and a skeleton crew of 38 surviving men, all that is left of the 600 men who set out under the defendant's care on their journeys home. But turning to you, Mr. Odysseus, I told you way back when I started this prosecution this morning that I wanted to be fair, and I think you have to concede, Mr. Odysseus, that I have not asked you to say a thing to the jury which has not been precisely your own testimony on the record from the Great Wanderings. I have put not a single word into your mouth. So let me start off my examination by commending you for your courage and for your ingenuity. When the temptress Circe transformed half of your crew into pigs, you did not abandon them there on the island, but instead, Mr. Odysseus, you managed to rescue those men, and then you managed to convince Circe, a dangerous temptress, to transform your pigmen back into human beings once again. So well done, Mr. Odysseus, and I want the jury to know you saved 19 of the men left in your fleet the horrifying fate of having to live out their existence as pigs with human brains. Uh, but just before we move on, a, a quick clarification for the benefit of the jury, if you don't mind, Mr. Odysseus. Because the jury no doubt assumes that once you had saved your pigmen, then your first and your only priority would have been to immediately escape the island and put as much distance between yourself and that dangerous temptress Circe as possible. But, Mr. Odysseus, your own account in The Great Wanderings suggests that you were actually in no hurry at all to leave Circe's island. In fact, it appears as though you spent a full year on Circe's island following the rescue of your men. And that, I'm consulting the record now, you spent most of the year, let me find the precise words, okay, okay, here it is. You spent most of the next year, I quote, in the temptress Circe's gorgeous bed. Now, that was no doubt an uplifting diversion for you personally, Mr. Odysseus. Uh, 
but it seems to have been of much less pleasure to the men in your crew, who badly wanted to leave the island and be reunited, if you will, in the gorgeous beds of their own long-missed wives. In fact, Mr. Odysseus, the record indicates that your men complained about the year-long sojourn on Circe's island. Can you read for the jury exactly what your men said to you? Uh, Captain, this is madness. It is time to leave now if we ever hope to return to our own dear country. So your men were telling you staying with Circe was madness. Your men were telling you that it was time to go. But is it also not true, Mr. Odysseus, that your very own second-in-command, a man named Eurylochus, had also cautioned you at the very onset of the year that you squandered in Circe's gorgeous bed, that your plan to stay on Circe's island was foolhardy in the extreme? In fact, Mr. Odysseus, do we not actually have the words of Eurylochus and your response to him right here inside of the Great Wandering's testimony? Mr. Odysseus, if you don't mind reading what Eurylochus said to you. Are you crazy, Captain? Why go looking for trouble in Circe's house? Thank you. And now would you tell the jury how you responded to that sensible advice from your second-in-command. I considered drawing my sword and cutting off his head. Only my comrades restrained me from doing it. Thank you, Mr. Odysseus. And it is a rather remarkable confession you have just made. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury... If you will allow me to summarize the sordid little details of the defendant's leadership on Circe's island. The defendant, against the protestations of his crew and the wise counsel of his second-in-command, he chose to delay his entire remaining crew's day of their longed-for homecoming to Ithaca for no other reason than to assuage his own out-of-control sexual appetites. Now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I assure you that I am no sexual prude and I am making no moral comments whatsoever on the defendant's personal life choices. And if Mr. Odysseus had have been a solitary traveler, attempting to make it back home after ten long years away, and had then decided to delay his reunion to his own wife's marriage bed in exchange for the carnal pleasures of a year-long romp in the bed of a temptress, well then, any crimes committed by that decision would be best arbitrated in the courtroom of the defendant's own wife. But I need to remind the jury, Mr. Odysseus is not, and was not, a solitary traveler. Rather, he was the guardian and the steward and the commander-in-chief of the men who trusted him with command.
And what is so absolutely shameful in Mr. Odysseus's behavior is willfully delaying the homecomings of the men in his charge and their reunions with their wives for that long, unnecessary year. In sum, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the defendant Mr. Odysseus's conduct on Circe's Island was unconscionable and a gross criminal dereliction of his duties as the commander-in-chief of the fleet. Now, if it pleases the jury, I am down to my final case and arguments to make this morning against the defendant, Mr. Odysseus. And to do so, I would invite the jury to now direct their attentions to the leadership choices that Mr. Odysseus made on the island of the cattle of the sun god. So, Mr. Odysseus, directing my questions to you, it appears from the Great Wanderings record, Mr. Odysseus, that you had been provided with reliable and consistent intelligence that it would be foolhardy and dangerous in the extreme to land your ship on the island of the sun god. Uh, Mr. Odysseus, could you please tell the jury what you saw and what you knew about that island? Well, still out on the sea in my black ship, I heard the lowing of cattle, and I thought of the words of the prophet Teresius and of the goddess Circe who both had warned me strictly that we must avoid this island. Okay, thank you, Mr. Odysseus. And you have already gone ahead and anticipated what was going to be my next question. So let's move to it. Mr. Odysseus, when you spotted the island off on the horizon, the island you've been warned about, you then warned your crew against landing on that island. Is that true, Mr. Odysseus? With heavy heart, I spoke to my crew. Boys, I know how much you have suffered. But Teresius and Circe both insisted that we must avoid this island. Boys, we have to steer our ship around it. Thank you for that, Mr. Odysseus. And it does seem as though it is the only militarily responsible thing for you to have done, given that you had the twin warnings of both Circe and of Teresius. Now, Mr. Odysseus, the Great Wanderings record at this point suggests that your crew protested and that they complained to you that they wanted to land on the island in spite of all of your dire warnings against it. Now, I'm going to willingly concede, Mr. Odysseus, that at this moment, your leadership must have really been put to the test. With your crew complaining that they wanted to land on the island, but with you knowing that landing on the island guaranteed certain death to all of the men in your fleet. Mr. Odysseus, it must have been a heavy burden for you as the commander of the fleet to have to bear. But of course, as the commander of the fleet, it was not only your right, 
but your duty, sir, to say no to your men's protests and requests. But Mr. Odysseus, somehow you did not say no, did you? Rather, you capitulated and gave in to the request of the men in your crew. Mr. Odysseus, would you tell the jury your exact words when your men demanded to land on the island of death? What did you say to them? I am one against many, so I have to give in. So, in effect, Mr. Odysseus, what you are telling the jury here this morning is that in your men's moment of greatest peril, you abdicated your responsibility as a leader and instead chose to transform your ship into some sort of a democracy instead. I'm sure the jury will find that an interesting leadership choice that you made, sir. But let's move on to the island and pick up the story from there. And we know from the Great Wanderings account all of the disturbing and grisly details of what happened on that island. So I will keep my summary brief. Mr. Odysseus, your men landed. Your men grew hungry. Your men became increasingly tempted by the forbidden cattle of the sun god. And eventually your men decided to kill, to butcher, to barbecue, and to eat those forbidden cattle. And then, of course, the sun god asked Zeus to send down a bolt of lightning and kill all of your men. So, Mr. Odysseus, just one question for you, sir. Where were you, and what were you doing when this monstrous crime of killing the cattle actually happened? I strode off to pray, so I left my men behind, and I crossed the island, and I prayed to all of the gods. And the gods? The gods poured a gentle sleep upon my eyes. And while I was on the other side of the island, sound asleep, Eurylochus proposed his foolish plan. Okay, Odysseus, forgive me, stop right there, please, but I just want to make very sure that I just heard you correctly, sir. So, did I get this correct? Knowing that your men were hungry and tempted by those cattle, you deliberately chose to absent yourself from them, and in fact, you deliberately chose to hike all the way over to the far side of the island. And now... You were telling the jury that once you were over on the far side of the island, you somehow fell asleep. Mr. Odysseus, does it not seem at all a little bit too convenient that in your men's moment of greatest peril, you, the leader and the steward of your men's lives, were suddenly nowhere to be found? And with respect, Mr. Odysseus, I'm sure the jury has already noted it. 
But this does seem to be a bit of a recurring pattern in your supposed leadership style. You will recall, sir, that in this case you're on the far side of an island. In an earlier case, in the land of the Lastragonians, you were safely out on the Mediterranean side of a harbor. Both times, sir, you were nowhere to be found when disaster struck. And with further respect, Mr. Odysseus, the jury will also have noticed your recurring pattern of being conveniently asleep whenever the men under your command do something ill-advised or disastrous. Here on the island of the sun god, and earlier in your testimony, when your men opened the bag of Aeolus's wind, while you, sir, slept. Now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Mr. Odysseus set out from Troy with one simple task. Safely ferry 12 ships and 600 good men across the Aegean Sea to their homecomings. A journey that should have taken five to ten days at most. But, three long years later, all twelve ships were lost, and all six hundred of those good men were dead. But curiously, the man in the prisoner box in front of you now, the man named Odysseus, the commander of that doomed fleet, well, that man is somehow still alive and well. And if the overwhelming evidence that I presented to you today, that Mr. Odysseus is guilty of criminal negligence in a leadership capacity, well, if that evidence is not sufficient to convict Odysseus, then, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, all I will leave you with is this. If the man standing in the witness box now had any sort of shame, that man, still alive, when all 600 of the men who trusted him with their homecomings are dead, well, that man would stand up right now and convict himself. Thank you. The prosecution rests. Thank you, prosecution. Now, does the defense have any witnesses to call? The defense has just one witness, Your Honor. The defense calls Mr. Homer to the witness stand. Now, good morning, Mr. Homer. And I see that you have already been sworn into the court. You state your name as Homer, and you have been identified by the court as a witness friendly and expert on behalf of the defense. Now, Mr. Homer, you've stated your occupation as that of omniscient narrator. So in that omniscience, Mr. Homer, the defense has just one question for you. Mr. Homer, in one of the documents submitted to this court as evidence, specifically the document referred to as the Odyssey, book number one, you, Mr. Homer, make a rather bold claim about the defendant... Mr. Odysseus's culpability, or actually his lack of culpability, in the death of his men. Now, Mr. Homer, would you please share your words for the benefit of the jury? 
I think you will find the words I'm referring to in what the court has already stipulated as the section of Book 1, referred to in legal proceedings as the Invocation to the Muse. So go ahead, Mr. Homer, and if you please, read the words with some authority for the benefit of the jury. Sing to me, muse, of that endlessly cunning man who was blown off course to the ends of the earth in the years after he had plundered sacred Troy. Mr. Homer, please forgive my interruption, and I think the entire court would agree, I certainly do, that it's absolutely lovely prose you're reading, but for the jury's benefit, Mr. Homer, might you just indulge the court by skipping ahead a little wee bit and picking up your testimony at the invocation section that begins with many pains. Thank you. It would be wonderful to hear you speaking so wonderfully from that point forward, Mr. Homer. You may go on. <clears throat> many pains he suffered, heartsick on the open sea, fighting to save his life and to bring his comrades home. But he could not save them from disaster, Hard as he strove, the recklessness of their own ways destroyed them all. The blind fools, they devoured the cattle of the sun, and the god wiped from sight the day of their return. Thank you, Mr. Homer. I, it, that really was quite eloquent and wonderful speaking. And, and well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. The words of the omniscient narrator, Mr. Homer himself. The defendant, Mr. Odysseus, is not responsible for the deaths of the men in his command. In fact, as Mr. Homer states, it was the recklessness of their own ways that destroyed them all. And the defendant who the prosecution has painted as some sort of a self-indulgent monster who cares nothing for the well-being of his crew? Well, again, allow Mr. Homer's own words to speak and ring true to you. Many pains he suffered, heartsick on the open sea, fighting to save his life and to bring his comrades home. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury... There really is nothing more for me to say. Mr. Homer has told you everything that you need to know. And now all that is left for you is to retire and do your duty and to find this noble man, this good man, this man who strove so hard to save his men, who suffered so many pains, to find this man not guilty on all charges. And so, with the authoritative and clear testimony of Mr. Homer, the omniscient narrator, answering all charges, the defense, with confidence, rests. Thank you, Madam Defense Attorney. And thank you, Mr. Homer. And just before I begin my cross-examination, sir, let me remark that that really was a rather lovely reading, and you, sir, have a quite magnificent voice. If you ever do decide to give up writing, well, sir, I assure you, you have an absolutely assured career as a bard. 
But I digress, so forgive me, and Mr. Homer, I will now get on with a few comments about your testimony to my esteemed colleague, if you do not so much mind, sir. Mr. Homer, you stated that the defendant, Mr. Odysseus, suffered many pains in his failed attempt to bring his 600 men back home. And, sir, I do have to agree with you. And I do not think that there is a living soul in this courtroom today unwilling to concede that Mr. Odysseus indeed suffered many pains and no doubt at times was rather heartsick. But I do need to remind the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is a trial of facts not a trial of feelings. And I fear, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that Mr. Homer here is attempting to distract you from those facts by a rhetorically delivered appeal to emotion. And I would further respectfully suggest that Mr. Homer's thundering omniscience notwithstanding, the pain that Mr. Odysseus suffered, and the heart-sick that Mr. Odysseus felt, was, truth be told, largely self-inflicted. And it was, in fact, the foolishness of Mr. Odysseus's ways that caused most of the miseries on this unfortunate homeward journey. And, ladies and gentlemen, one more thing. Mr. Homer, if you don't mind, might you read for the jury that wonderful, absolutely wonderful, very first line of your invocation to the muse? It was such stirring poetry, sir. Please read it for the jury now. I'm sure they'll love to hear your voice again. Sing to me, muse, of that endlessly cunning man who has blown off course to the ends of the earth in the years after he plundered sacred Troy. And did you notice it, ladies and gentlemen? Did you notice Mr. Homer's telltale omission in that very opening line? Because the line should read, I think the jury will agree, something more like this. Sing to me, muse, of those 600 men who were blown off course to the ends of the earth in the years after they had plundered sacred Troy. But, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Mr. Homer quite deliberately invites you to only consider the suffering of the defendant. And it's pretty obvious why. Because Mr. Homer, well, he would rather you entirely forget those other 600 men. Because that way, he calculates, you will not be compelled to raise legitimate questions about just who was in command of that fleet when all 600 of those men needlessly died. Uh, but back to you, Mr. Homer. I apologize. You have been standing up there patiently waiting for your cross-examination. So back to you, sir. Mr. Homer, you declare in your omniscient invocation to the muse only one reason 
for why the defendant's men were robbed of the day of their homecomings. Mr. Homer, could I ask you again to read that one reason for the benefit of the jury? <clears throat> the blind fools, they devoured the cattle of the sun, and the god wiped from sight the day of their return. Thank you, sir, and again, quite magnificent reading, sir. Now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it pains me to have to inform you of this, but it appears that the man on the witness stand now, though there is no doubt about his rhetorical craft, well, that man, he seems to suffer from a gross inability to do basic mathematics. Allow me to explain. As the jury knows, Mr. Odysseus and his one surviving ship set sail after their wasted year on Circe's Island with one ship and a surviving crew of only 38 men. But before they reached the island of the Sun God, they had lost another seven more men. One unfortunate soul named Elpanor fell off of the roof of Circe's house, and six more unfortunate men were lost to the six mouths of a monster named Scylla. And so, when the fleet, or what remained of the fleet, I suppose, when it arrived at the island of the sun god, and the defendant, Mr. Odysseus, capitulated to his crew's foolish desires, and allowed his crew to land on an island that he knew promised his crew certain death? Well, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, there were only 31 men left alive of the 600 men who had set out from Troy. Only 31 men ever ate those forbidden cattle. But to hear Mr. Homer tell it, all 600 men in Mr. Odysseus's fleet were somehow blind fools, culpable in that crime. And we know, and I have proven to you here this morning, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that that is simply not the case. The overwhelming majority of Mr. Odysseus's crew died not due to their own foolish ways, but rather due to the criminal negligence of their leader's foolish ways. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I will leave you with this. Mr. Homer's omniscient testimony in his Odyssey might be great poetry, but it is very bad math, and I dare say it is even worse law and justice. And the defendant... Mr. Odysseus, he remains guilty of criminal negligence in a leadership capacity. And even the thundering declarations of an omniscient narrator cannot save Odysseus from that hard truth. So now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you have heard both sides of the case. My case against Mr. Odysseus and my esteemed colleague's case attempting to exonerate Mr. Odysseus on all charges. So now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it is up to you. Is the defendant 
standing in front of you now in the prisoner's box, Mr. Odysseus, guilty on the charge of criminal negligence in a leadership capacity. I invite you to retire and to return with your verdict. And so there you have it, folks. My own little playful attempt to deconstruct the Odyssey's great wanderings, not as a quest story, but as a revisionist 21st century courtroom drama. But ladies and gentlemen, we all of course know that the Odyssey, and especially the great wanderings of Book 9-12 to 12 of the Odyssey, is a quest story. And we've already reviewed in an earlier post-story commentary everything that we need to know about the detailed rules for just how a quest story has to work. And so, of course, all of those 600 expendable cast members, those red shirts, well, they simply had to die. And of course, Odysseus, the hero of the quest, he alone had to defeat the monsters, overcome, well, more accurately speaking, eventually overcome, all of the temptations, and somehow managed to survive himself. And so I freely confess that in order to make my little trial of Odysseus experiment work, I had to first tear down a whole host of literary conventions and a whole host of walls, including the fourth one. But now, now that I've had my fun, now I hope that you have had your fun, it's time for us both to move forward and right back into the genre of epic story that Homer originally intended his Odyssey to be. And so, in episode number seven to follow, we will once again defer to Homer's authoritative telling of the tale. Now, as to that episode number seven. Well, in it, we will find our boy, our hero, our Odysseus, all alone and washed up on the shores of a particularly intriguing and highly promising island. And what happens on that island, I assure you folks, it's going to be a great deal of really good fun. So now it's time for me to say my goodbyes. So stay well, my faithful listeners. Have yourself awesome days. And we will talk again very soon. Bye for now.